0: Good to, have a, good to have you back with us, and good to see a few new faces in the congregation as well. Welcome to you. Um, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy, mainly verse, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, so it would be good to have that out in front of you. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. We've been going through 1 Timothy over the past few weeks in our evening services. Now, imagine that you get the opportunity to write a letter to a struggling church, wracked by false teachers, division in the congregation. What would be your primary piece of advice to this struggling and flailing church? Perhaps you'd want to make sure the elders were in, in, in the right place. Uh, have you got good elders there who are able to lead and guide the congregation? Uh, perhaps your advice would be about what the, what the people in the church are focusing on. Get them to refocus on the gospel. Remind them of what the gospel is. Get them to teach one another the gospel. Perhaps you'd recommend some good books to them. Perhaps you'd recommend some good hymns to them. Perhaps you'd remind them of the importance of reaching out. What would be your single most important piece of advice? Well, in chapter 2, verse 1, we've got to what seems like Paul's most important piece of advice to the church in Ephesus. He says, I urge them, First of all, by which he means of first importance, the most important thing. Do this first, Timothy. Before you get to doing anything else, do this. I urge first of all that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Especially for kings and all those in authority. Now, it's kind of a noble thing to ask the church to do, to be praying for the world and be praying for the government, but doesn't it strike you as a little bit unusual? It's a little bit unusual compared to our experience, first. For example, if you've been coming to to this church for any amount of time, just have a think about how often it is that we pray for kings and all those in authority. Now, it does happen. But, for example, it's not happened today in our services. It didn't happen this week at our midweek meeting. I can't be precise in thinking about when the last time it did happen. Probably within the last one or two months. So it does happen, but it's not a regular thing. It's not something we put a, a lot of effort into. It's not something that we make first priority. So it's unusual based on our experience of how churches run. And it's also unusual based on what we read in the New Testament. This is a command of first importance. But it doesn't get repeated in 2 Timothy. It doesn't get mentioned in Titus, where Paul is trying to do a similar thing. Teach Titus, or teach Timothy, to take control and teach the church. It doesn't really come up all that often in the rest of the New Testament. So what we've got here seems to be A real unexpected, unusual instruction where Paul is saying, the first thing I want you to do is to make sure that this church is praying for everybody, especially the leaders and the government. Now, I want to take Paul seriously. I want to make sure that we receive this command to be praying for everyone, especially kings and all in authority. But first, I want to try and understand why, has he made this first importance, what is he trying to achieve by presenting this command to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus? Now, the key to understanding, I think, this um, uh, is 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 to understand what what what's behind Paul's motive here. Why is it that he would want to give this instruction? Now, let's have a, a closer look at that verse. Chapter two, verse one. I urge then, first of all. Now, in English, this obscures a little bit the word therefore, which is in the Greek. And I think in the English translations, if you've got a New King James, you will have the word therefore. But in the ESV and in the NIV and others, it, it just says, I urge then, first of all. Now, you can sort of see the idea of therefore, he's, he's building this command upon what's gone previously, by saying, I urge then. He's sort of made his argument in chapter one, started himself off, and he's saying, so then. Now I'm going to urge that you make requests and prayers for everyone. He's pointing us back to what's come before. So what's has come in chapter 1? Well, if you've not been with us, uh, it's fairly simple. Verse 3, uh, Timothy is there in Ephesus, and his command is to Timothy uh, to command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. So there are false teachers in the church, and Timothy's got to teach them not to teach false doctrine. These false teachers seem to have quite a heavy emphasis on the law. So look at verse 8 onwards, for example. Paul dives into an argument about what the law is for and why it should be used and what it shouldn't be used for. After speaking about the law, he goes on to talk about himself. Verse 12 to 16, Paul is saying, just look at who I was. I was a vile sinner. I was a violent man. I was a persecutor. I was the chief of sinners. And yet I was shown mercy. He says, verse 13, Uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. Christ can even save the worst of sinners. The gospel isn't restricted only to those who are worthy. It's not just reserved for those who can already meet a set standard of right living. You see, these false teachers have bad theology. They're setting up this, this gospel, this false gospel, which depends upon law-keeping. Are you doing the right things? Are you good enough to be accepted by God? They want to maintain the, the purity of God's people. There's all sorts of arguments about genealogies. They're concerned about your heritage, where you come from, where you're born into. Gentiles, they're not part of the, God's people. Surely not. And they push those aside. They make all sorts of restrictions upon people. What they can and can't do. One of the things was they wanted people to abstain from marriage. And so these false teachers, what they're doing is they're saying, the gospel's not for everybody, it's for it's for these people. Who meet these standards. And Paul's saying, just look at me. I was a sinner. I was the worst of sinners. And God had mercy on me. So then, pray for everyone. Do you see now what Paul's trying to do by giving this command? He's trying to lift their eyes from their very small pool of people who are eligible for the gospel and reminding them, no, the gospel is something much, much, much greater. The gospel is God's plan to, to draw people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation and language and people group. The gospel is God's plan to bring all people to himself. So... Don't just pray for yourselves. Don't just pray for this small group of eligible people who you think might be ready to receive the gospel. Pray for all people. Pray for lawbreakers. Pray for sinners. Pray for Gentiles. Pray for the sexually immoral. Pray for the blasphemous. Pray for the persecutors. Pray for the enemies. There is no one who is beyond the offer of salvation. These false teachers had worked themselves into a corner with their bad theology. And Paul says, remind yourselves of the gospel. This is a gospel for everyone. Think as well about what Paul is aiming to do in this letter. A few weeks ago when we started looking at 1 Timothy, we didn't start at chapter 1 verse 1, we started at chapter 3 verse 15. We said that is the heart of the letter, where Paul's trying to get to. It, it lays out Paul's purpose. Chapter 3 15, Paul says... If I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. The reason Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus and to Timothy is so that people might know how to conduct themselves in the church. And what is the church? It's the pillar and foundation of truth. When we were looking at that verse, we said the fount- For the church to be the foundation of truth means it is built upon the truth and it protects the truth. And for the church to be the pillar of truth, that is that the church has a responsibility, an obligation to present the truth to the world. To hold it up high so that all can see. Now if that's the church's aim, if that's the church's purpose that Paul wants to try and get us to in this letter, then it fits that he's getting the church to pray in line with this purpose. Your job is to to hold this truth up high so that all men might see. Not so that it's restricted only to those in the know, only to those who uh, you restrict it to, but hold it up for everyone. Let all men see the goodness of this gospel, the offer of salvation. So by giving this command, Paul is responding to the bad theology that is within the church. But this command to, to pray for all people it's not the equivalent of doing lines, as it were. You know, if you if you do something wrong at school, your teacher might get you to stay behind and write on the blackboard 300 times, I will not throw my chewing gum at the teacher's back. You know, something along those lines. It's a, it's a discipline designed to teach you the correct way to think or to act. But this command that Paul gives isn't like the theological equivalent of doing lines. He's not just beating them with a stick to, to try and get them to think the right way. It's also the result of good theology. And in the verses that follow, Paul sets out his own thinking. He sets out his own theology to show why it is that he gives this command. Now, we're going to go to... There's three reasons, I think, that Paul gives, at least, um, why this is the right thing to do. And we start at verse 3. Praying for all people uh, because this is good and pleases God, our Saviour. The first reason we ought to pray for all people is because it pleases God, our Saviour. Now, really, what other motive do we need? We are God's people. We are his children. We have been saved for his glory. And if we learn that praying for other people pleases him, why wouldn't we want to do that? Surely that's part of Paul's argument here. It pleases God when you pray for people. It pleases God that you are concerned for the nation in which you live. So, be concerned. Pray. But it leaves us with a bit of a question as to, well, why does it please God? Why does it please God that, uh, that we pray for others? And uh, verse 4 says, Because God is a God who wants all men to be saved, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It pleases God when you pray for other people, because God wants all people to be saved. Now don't get yourself tied up in knots here about what exactly Paul's teaching here, and hey, does this contradict with, with other parts of his teachings? Just remember the context of what's going on. You've got here false teachers who are trying to restrict the gospel. Only these certain people, only these with the heritage, only these with the certain law keeping, only these with a certain knowledge, only, only these people can have the gospel. And Paul's saying, just remember who your God is. Right from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, this, this morning we were thinking about, was God's promises, were they limited to just a small group of people? No, they weren't. They were general for the whole world. Think about Abraham, the first man of God, as it were. He was called, he was given the promises. And what were those promises? Just for Abraham and his family? No. The promise was that through you, Abraham, the whole world will be blessed. Right from the beginning, God has had a plan for the whole world. He's not, he's not been designing it to restrict it to a certain group of people. Think about the prophets and the way they teach. They're saying that that when Jerusalem is going to be restored, people are going to come from from every tribe and tongue and nation. They're going to come from all over the world to come and worship this God at this temple. And think about Jesus. Did he limit his message just to the religious in uh, Jerusalem? No, he went out. Mark's Gospel, one of the first people who responds to Jesus is a Gentile. The demon, the man where, where all the, the demon um, not a demon, the, the man who has all the demons, where the demons rush out of him and go into the pigs. He's one of the first people who respond in faith to Jesus, and he's a Gentile. Jesus didn't come to restrict the message to a certain group of people, he came to reach the world. And he sent his his disciples out and he said, Go and make disciples of the whole world. Go and share this good news. The reason it pleases God when we pray for other people is because right from the very beginning, it's been God's intention that his gospel would be shared across the whole wide world. That there would be, the offer is not restricted from anyone. It's a free offer of the gospel. So Paul isn't talking about universal salvation or anything of the sort here. You know, you see that in chapter 1, verse 20. He's already spoken about those who are outside salvation. He's saying that God's plan of salvation was never intended to be limited. So we pray because it pleases God. Secondly, we pray because it fits with the work that Christ has done. Look at verse 5. Paul now gives a little statement of faith, as it were. He says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given in its proper time. Paul says, there's one God and there's one mediator. And he alone is the ransom. When you look around the world, you will see many, many different religions, each with their own God. Paul says, there aren't many gods. There is one God to whom everyone will answer. When you look at these different religions and the ways different people think, they will all claim to have different ways by which you reach God. Perhaps through prayer, perhaps through pilgrimage, perhaps through giving, perhaps through uh, uh, self-denial. Paul says, there aren't many ways to God. There is one way to God. There is one mediator, Jesus Christ. And despite... Christ, either being a stumbling block or being foolishness to the world. He is the only ransom that we have available to us. When some perhaps well-meaning Christians decide that it's best for the church not to go preaching to Muslims or Hindus or people of other faiths because hey, they've, they've got a faith. They're aiming for God and You know, God will be merciful, he'll be kind to them. When people restrict the gospel from going to people like that, when people are fearful and and decide that it's the wrong thing to do, to to speak to people who live uh, lives which are contradictory to the gospel, live lives separated from God, hating God, then, in effect, they deny the work of Christ. They deny the fact of his ransom. They deny the fact of him being the only mediator and they deny the fact of there only being one God. And when, as Christians, we neglect to pray for those same people, Muslims, Hindus, atheists, homosexuals, liars, thieves leaders in the government when we neglect to pray for those people we say effectively by our actions it doesn't matter what God they serve we say effectively it doesn't matter that they don't have the ransom paid for them we say effectively there must be more than one way to God and Paul says no There is one way and there is one God to whom everyone must give account. So when we pray for people, when we pray for our neighbours, when we pray for our children, when we pray for uh, those in government, when we pray for them to be saved, for them to come to a knowledge of the truth, we pray in, in line with Christ's work. He is the only way that anyone can be saved. And if anyone will be saved, they must Come to Him. In these verses, um, it's suggested that that by by giving this little statement of faith, Paul is perhaps rebuking those false teachers. Uh, they would love to quote, for example, the Shema of uh, the Jews: "The Lord our God, the Lord is one." They would place the emphasis on the Lord our God. Uh, ma- many other religions have their gods, but not our God is the God who's for Israel, the God is for us, the God who has protected us, the God of our fathers and our ancestors. He is our God. And Paul says, no. Y- your emphasis is all wrong. There is one God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. For there is one God, he says. Those false teachers, they would have considered Moses their mediator. He's the one who received the law. He's the one who's passed it on. Paul says, no, don't consider Moses your mediator. Jesus is your mediator. He is the only way to God the Father. Uh, These false teachers had considered that they might earn their way to God through their works, through their obedience. Paul says, no, there is one ransom, and that's the ransom that Christ paid on our behalf. This was a, a mild rebuke to the false teachers. And for those of us who are perhaps building our own righteousness, trying to earn our way to God by attending church regularly, by saying the right things and and being the right kind of person, by not being as bad as that guy over the street, this ought to be a rebuke to us too. God does not accept us based on what we are able to do for him. God accepts us only by the work of Christ done on our behalf. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your own works? Are you clinging to it? Are you offering it to God? Saying, hey, here's my several years, here's my decades of service to you in the church. Here's my bank balances showing that the money I've given. Here's the time I've spent in prayer. Here, God, take it. Let this be a rebuke. That's not what you can offer God. It's worthless. It's not. It's nowhere near the ransom. Christ paid the ransom. Cling to Christ. He's the only way to the Father. And the third reason is because to pray for others fits with Paul's own commission. This is verse 7. Uh, he reminds the church, For this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Um, This is perhaps one of the clearest um, indications that this letter was not just written to Timothy, but it was intended for the whole church to read and understand. Um, Why would Timothy need to be told, hey, I'm not lying about my, my task? Timothy had spent years working alongside Paul, so Timothy already knew that. Paul's writing here to the false teachers, to the people in the church, and he's saying, look at what I've been commissioned to do. I've been commissioned by God, commanded, he says in chapter 1, verse 1. I've been commanded by Christ to go out into the whole world and preach this gospel to the Gentiles. If I'm commanded to go, why aren't you praying for me? Why aren't you alongside me? Why aren't you supporting me? Why are you restricting the gospel? Why do you not believe that God can and will save the heathen? Pray for me and pray for these people that I'm reaching, Paul says. The command to pray is a result of Paul's Good theology. And so I would posit then that this command to pray for others rests upon us too. If it's not just a response to bad theology, if it is a result of good theology, then if our theology is good, we also ought to be praying for for the world. So how do we pray? Well, three hints from the passage about how we ought to pray. First, we can pray for the salvation of people. This has been my strongest emphasis in the way I've tried to explain these verses this evening. And I think it's Paul's emphasis, given the context here. You know, isn't it tempting to limit the message of the gospel? We kind of assess, as the people that we meet, who, who is going to be most likely to respond to this message? Who am I going to be ready to, to pour my time and efforts into in order to build that relationship, in order to share this good news? The Muslim lady next door who wears uh, the, the, the burqa, whose uh, husband is almost militantly Islamic, who barely, you can, you can barely get a word in with her because her life is so restricted. Is it worth trying to build a relationship with her? Is it worth trying to even share the gospel with her? Or is she just beyond the reach of the gospel? Something else needs to happen before I can begin sharing my faith with her. Pray for her. The gospel need not be limited. What about the children who come to Friday clubs, to Holiday Bible Club? They're just just children. Their parents have got no interest in the church. They just bring them along for two hours free childcare. Are they really going to accept the gospel? And if they did ever accept the gospel, would they really be genuine Christians? Because, you know, they, they wouldn't end up being brought to a church and they wouldn't get the support and it's easy to limit the gospel, isn't it? Let's not bother. Let's not pray for them. No. God is able to save anyone who he chooses to call. Pray for these people. Don't allow the gospel to be limited by what you define. As right and wrong and the people who might accept or not. God is able to save. What about the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses who knock on your door? Is it worth sharing the gospel with them? Or are you just getting into an argument to to fend them off? To get back to your dinner? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So pray for sinners. Pray that they might come to a knowledge of the truth. You know, one poor life decision, one whole string of life decisions that have led people away from what we might call a respectable life, doesn't lead them away from the offer of the gospel. It's still there, and it's open to anyone. When we pray, pray then for people to be saved. Pray for God to have mercy. Pray for men, women and children, from all backgrounds, all walks of life, Pray for people to hear and to respond. Pray for the church to live up to its task of being the pillar of truth. Holding it out for everyone to see. Pray that people would be saved. Secondly, we can pray with thanksgiving, requests and intercessions. Have another look at chapter 2, verse 1. It doesn't just say pray for people to be saved. It says, I urge them, first of all, that requests prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Uh, This suggests that you're praying for more than just people to be saved. There's another set of prayers here that he's urging us towards. Think about this. When Christ came to save you, what was he here to save you from? Was he here just to save you from the punishment for your sin? Well, he did come to save you from the punishment for your sin, but he didn't just come to save you from the punishment of your sin. If you accept what we were hearing about this morning, he came to save you from all of the effects of sin. He came to give you freedom. He came to give you life to the full. He came to bless you, to help you, to love you, to care for you. And you pray for yourselves, don't you? We've prayed for our brothers and sisters this evening. That Christ would draw near to them, comfort them, help them, care for them. We've prayed for our daily bread, for our needs. We've thanked Christ for the way he does provide for us. Is that just because we're Christians? We're in his group already. We're in the club, as it were. So we can pray for those things, but you know, if you're not a Christian, can you really be asking for God's help before you submit to him as God? Think about the way Jesus dealt with people during His ministry. When 5,000 men with their families and children alongside them sat down on the grass and looked with hungry, tired eyes toward Jesus, did He tell His disciples, hey, right, I've got a plan, but I need you to find out which of these people are going to follow me first? Or did He look at the crowd and see them as sheep without a shepherd? and have compassion on them, and share the food that he had? You know the answer. He loved. Would it be sensible to think that a man who is willing to give his own life in order to redeem people from a sinful race, is he the kind of man who will only answer prayers if you're one of the people on his team? Or is he the kind of man who He's ready to respond and help where he can. If he's concerned about us, why would he not be concerned about others? Why can't we be praying for those people who will not pray for themselves? We know the character of God. We know what he's like. Bring your prayers to him For those who don't know. For those who would never come and ask him for anything. Pray. Make requests. Make intercession. Make thanksgiving. Pray for those who will not pray for themselves. And thirdly, and finally, um, pray for kings and all those in authority. This is verse 2. Pray for kings and all those in authority. I take this to be a subset of everybody. What I think is happening here is Paul is saying, pray for everybody, especially kings and all those in authority. I think it's a subset of everybody. Um, And it gives a reason why we ought to pray for kings and all those in authority. Verse 2. So that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That we may live peaceful and quiet lives. Now, that's not, I don't think peace and quiet. I don't think he's saying pray for the kings so that we can have it easy. So that we can have a restful life. That we're we're never going to get bothered by anything. I think the sense in which he's praying for peaceful and quiet lives fits with the idea of the church being the pillar and foundation of truth. That we might be able to fulfill our responsibility and our duty to hold out the truth to the world. But in order to do that, we need not be a stumbling block to people. We need to not be Um, uh, uh, people need to to be able to look at the church and see such good lives in in the people of the church that though they accuse us of doing wrong they might inevitably glorify God. And so he gets us to pray for those in authority and I suggest we ought to be able to pray for them as they carry out their responsibilities That they would rule in a way that protects the freedom of the church. To be able to go about the business that God has given us to do. Pray that they would rule in a way that is wise. That brings justice. Not just for Christians, but also others, non-Christians. Those that we're praying for, remember? Pray for these leaders. um, For stability in the leadership. For safety. For peace for the country. And pray as well for their salvation, and for their well-being, and for their health, because they too are part of this group of people that God asks us to pray for.